Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we begin a series in the book of Matthew called The Authority of the King. So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 8 to chapter 10 as we begin our series with a message entitled The Authority of the King. On more than one occasion, I've had the awesome privilege of leading an atheist to faith in Jesus. In each of these encounters, I've been asked what for the atheist was the troubling question of miracles. After all, the Bible is full of descriptions of them. And furthermore, there is no place where more miracles are found than in the accounts of Jesus. If you don't believe miracles are possible, the accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus are simply unbelievable. David Hume was a Scottish philosopher who lived in the 18th century, and his view of miracles have greatly influenced many people. Hume began with a statement. He said, miracles are a violation of the laws of nature. Now, up to this point, I suppose no real disagreements. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, the laws of nature, it would seem, would have dictated that Lazarus would not rise from the dead. Next, Hume argued that firm and unalterable experience has established the laws of nature. That is, we we come up with the laws of nature because we observe the way in which nature behaves. Again, it's, it's hard to argue with him there. Throw a rock off the side of a cliff and it's going to fall to the ground. It never rises upwards. And in the case of birds and airplanes, none of the laws of nature are violated because the behavior of these things are perfectly predictable through observation and repetition. Now, from these two premises, Hume drew a conclusion. He said, no one ever sees exceptions to the laws of nature. Now, it's here that one might object. But wait, the four eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus tells us that people did see exceptions to the laws of nature. But Hume had an answer. Let me quote from him. He says, by definition, a miracle goes against our very regular and extensive experience of how the world works. Therefore, on the basis of experience, the probability that a miracle has occurred must be less than the probability that it hasn't. Because it's rational to believe what is most probable, we never have a good reason to believe that a miracle has occurred, end quote. And so Hume argued that miracles were improbable events. Ancient people would have had a pre-scientific view, and they'd been less likely to know how nature works and, and were therefore more prone to believe accounts that are highly improbable. But we have every reason today, he says, to doubt the accounts of miracles because they are highly improbable. Now, now here's the giant weakness in Hume's argument. Nothing comes from nothing. The fact that something rather than nothing exists and the fact that all science points to the fact that that nature is not eternal, well, that means that all things that exist came into being out of nothing. And that, for Mr. Hume, defies all the laws of nature. So if I am to believe your arguments, then I must also believe that nothing exists. For if something exists, that would, by your definition, Mr. Hume, be highly improbable. But here we are. The existence of nature defies every established principle of observation of how things work. Furthermore, Hume does a great deal of disservice to the ancients. 
It's almost as if Hume assumes that the ancients didn't know that dead men and women don't rise from the dead. Indeed, let me turn Dr. Hume's argument on its head. Observable evidence tells us that a miracle occurred in the creation, and since the creation is observable, doesn't it therefore follow that the same creator who brought something out of nothing can at any moment direct all of nature in a way that suits his desires? Matthew chapters 8 to 10 are, are three chapters that are chock full of miracles. We find the creator entering into the creation, directing the creation according to his designs. But before I go further, let's step back and see if we can view the entire book of Matthew from a macro perspective. The first two chapters of Matthew gives us the very familiar Christmas story. And from that, chapters 3 and 4 explains Jesus' preparation for ministry, which includes a description of the role of John the Baptist in, in preparing the way for Jesus, and then, of course, Jesus' baptism and temptation. Matthew then very quickly moves beyond the first year of Jesus' ministry, which has often been called the year of obscurity. Instead, he very quickly moves his description of Jesus' public ministry in Galilee. Israel at the time of Jesus would be divided into Judea to the south and Galilee to the north. Galilee is a mountainous area. It contained a great many small villages and towns. People were, to the most part, either fishermen or subsistence farmers. Matthew presents Jesus moving freely throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and in many villages. Indeed, Matthew chapters 5 to 7 opens this section of Jesus' ministry in Galilee with the very famous Sermon on the Mount. The sermon was preached just outside of Capernaum, which became Jesus' hometown and the base of his operations. It was a village that was located on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and just outside of the village, one can find a hill overlooking the lake where, where Jesus preached his famous sermon. But Matthew presents Jesus preaching here, and, and we have to assume that what he said there was very likely repeated in all the towns and villages where he traveled. Now, anyone reading Matthew is going to soon realize that, that Matthew presents his material only somewhat in a chronological fashion. What he's doing is grouping Jesus' major activities into categories. If Matthew chapter 5 to 7 pictures Jesus as the great preacher, Matthew chapters 8 to 10 pictures him as the great miracle worker. And so Matthew 8 to 10 contains three cycles of three miracles. In chapter 8, 1 to 17, he shows Jesus healing a leper, then the servant of a Roman centurion, and then finally, Peter's mother-in-law, which, which moves to an all-night healing service in the town of Capernaum. The second cycle of miracles found in chapter 8, verses 23 to chapter 9, verse 8, and here the first is not a physical healing, but the account of Jesus calming the storm, then the healing of two demon-possessed men, and then finally, the raising of a paralyzed man. The third cycle of miracles is found in chapter 9, verses 18 to 34. Here the first is the dramatic account of the daughter of a synagogue ruler who has died, and Jesus raises her from the dead, then he heals two blind men, and then finally a demon-possessed man who's mute. But what's also fascinating is that after each cycle of miracles is presented, Matthew includes the call of Jesus. 
After the first cycle of miracles, a man approaches Jesus, offering to follow him wherever he would go. And in response, Jesus tells him that foxes and birds have their own homes, but he has no place to lay his head and has no place to call home. This would-be follower should think about that. Then after the second cycle of miracles, we have the, the very dramatic moment where Jesus calls Matthew to leave his tax collector's booth, his source of income, and abandon everything he has and follow him. And then finally, after the third cycle of miracles, we hear Jesus teaching his disciples that the, that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And with that, he calls his 12 disciples and sends them out with a very clear set of instructions. They are to expect persecution and a very hard life in following him. This is not going to be a life of ease. What with all the miracles that we've witnessed, they are not to expect that things are going to go easily. Jesus did not come to bring peace and ease, but a sword and a great deal of conflict. And so in these three chapters, Matthew chapters 8 to 10, we'll see a great deal of miracles accompanied by a very challenging call to leave all sense of ease and come and follow Jesus. And what are we to make of that? What is it that Matthew wants us to know? See, there's no doubt that what Matthew is describing is exactly what Jesus did. He's describing a real historical situation, Jesus and his ability to do miracles, Jesus, the Lord of all creation, Jesus, the one who has all authority because he is the king of the universe. But why has Matthew packaged these stories the way he has? Jesus did a great deal more miracles. Why does he present these nine? And furthermore, why after each cycle of three miracles does he present us with the demands of discipleship? Why these wonderful miracles set against a background of just how demanding it's going to be to follow Jesus? See, I think the answer has everything to do with two themes Matthew knows that Jesus is communicating. You remember the very last words in the book of Matthew. Jesus has been raised from the dead and he's meeting his disciples just before he's taken up into heaven. And he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples. And that's essentially what Matthew 8 to 10 is all about. Matthew, an eyewitness of these events, wants to show us that all authority in heaven and earth belong to Jesus. And because of that, he wants us to see a moral mandate. We are to take up our cross and follow Jesus. As time speeds by, it's even more important that we consider how we live. That's why I'm so grateful for friends like you who walk with us verse by verse through the Bible. The encouragement we received recently from Ruth reminds us of how precious this is. Dr. John's teachings are fascinating and really bring the Bible to life for me. I can almost visualize the scenes in my mind like watching a movie when I listen to him. I usually listen to the radio program at work and end up going home and rereading the passage you spoke about that day, and every time I see it through different eyes. What a great way to use the time we've been given. With minds transformed by the washing of God's Word, we're given different eyes and God's own heart to see the world we live in. If you'd like to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at one 800 663 
I've long thought that faith is a holy gamble. Imagine, if you will, a man or a woman in a casino. Now, now, before I go any further, please don't be offended by my illustration. I don't gamble. I don't go to casinos. I think gambling is not only silly, I think the matter is immoral. Now, now that I've said that, please listen to my illustration. Imagine a woman at a roulette wheel. I understand that when one makes a bet on a specific number, their odds of winning are 35 to 1. Now, let's assume that the payout is 35 to 1. So let's get back to our woman at the roulette table. She's sold her house and she's cashed out all her savings. Everything she owns, everything she's spent her lifetime accumulating is on that table. If she wins, she lives the rest of her life in style. She'll have more riches than she'll ever need. And if she loses, and chances are she's going to lose, she'll be reduced to poverty in a life of misery. And so with a glint in her eye, she puts all that she has on a single number, and then she whispers, roll the wheel. Do you like that illustration of faith? I bet you don't. But consider such passages as Matthew 19, 29. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Well, now, that sounds like a holy gamble. Give up everything you have in the wild hope that what Jesus said about eternal life is true. Put all your assets on one amazing promise. Bet all you have on the hope that this promise is true. See, my wife and I recently returned from vacation, and this year we decided to do something very different. We traveled to Peru with a group of friends and had the wonderful adventure of visiting Machu Picchu, that amazing Inca city located in the Andes. And there's a bus that takes you to the entrance of the ancient ruins, and that bus ride is quite the thing. It has numerous switchbacks that go up a very steep mountain road, and that road is often quite narrow. It's a dirt road. There's no railing, and it drops off a massive cliff. And as we were going up, I noticed one woman closing the curtain beside her window. She was simply too terrified to look out. Well, on that day, it had rained the night before and making the road extra treacherous. And I noticed that just before the bus started up the steep slope, the driver made a sign of a cross. Now, I also noticed that he had over the top of his head on the bus a small statue of Mary, but also a Hamsa hand was depicted. Now, if you don't know what that is, it's a Middle Eastern symbol which is intended to bring you luck. It's a symbol found in Judaism, some Christian circles, in Islam, and numerous other religions. It's kind of like saying, whoever is out there, would you give me good luck today? See, I had to smile as I, as I thought of my bus driver driving up a very treacherous road, wanting to make sure that he had all his bases covered, and he wanted to offend no deity at all, whether the deity was of the Christian faith or of one of the Inca deities. And do you see, most people are like my Peruvian bus driver. They don't want to put all their hopes on one number on the roulette wheel. They want to spread out their chances and, and up the odds. But the Jesus that's found in the book of Matthew, and by that, I mean the real Jesus, the, the one who actually exists, well, he's going to have none of that. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. See, Jesus pictured a day when rain falls and floods come, and only those who build their house on his words are going to survive. And that brings us back to chapters 8 to 10. 
Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 10, 21 to 22. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father is child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The point is that following Jesus will cost his followers everything. And why would his followers be willing to lose all things in this world in order to follow him? And the answer is that they've gambled all to follow him. That's what Jesus promised. If you've left houses and lands for his sake, you will not fail to receive so much more. But doesn't that sound like our gambler putting all her assets on one number on the roulette wheel? See, if it pays off, great. But what if it doesn't? And doesn't that sound faintly like what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19? He said, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Well, that brings us back to these amazing three chapters, Matthew 8 to 10. In these chapters, Matthew shows us three groupings of three miracles, and after each one of them, invites us to consider the cost of following Jesus. See, it becomes very easy to see what he's up to. Matthew wants us to consider the cost of following Jesus up against the miraculous authority of Jesus. So let's ask the question, why did Jesus do miracles and why do the gospel writers, in this case Matthew, take so much time describing them to us? Well, one of the reasons is simply the compassion of Jesus. I mean, listen how Matthew describes one of the miracles. It's in Matthew 9, 36. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And it's simply the case that Jesus did miracles because he was moved by the plight of fallen and sinful people. And Jesus demonstrates for us that God loves, that he is moved by the tragedies that befall people. Jesus shows that God will not stand aloof from human tragedies, that he comes to rescue and to heal and to restore and to give hope. There's also another reason for the miracles of Jesus. In order to get at that, let's consider three different Greek words that are translated as miracles. The first is the word dunamis. It's sometimes translated as power, and it comes from the same root word from which we get our English word dynamic. The idea behind this is that a miracle is a demonstration of power, that is, the power of God. The second Greek word is the word simeon, which can also be translated as a sign. That is, the miracle itself points to something. It's a sign of God's presence or even the sign that the kingdom of God has has entered into the present realm or that Jesus, the one who does the miracle, is signing that he indeed is the long-expected Messiah and the one who has power over disease and nature and over hunger and want and over demons and, and finally over life and death. A third Greek word is the word teros, a word whenever it's found is paired with the word simeon or sign. See, the word teros means a wonder. It's something unexpected, something astonishing, something you would not have anticipated. God has suddenly broken into the human race and he surprised us with his presence. Now, putting these three words together, we can see that a miracle is a demonstration of God's power, which serves as a sign to show that God is present and at work among us. And that means that the reason we find miracles in the life of Jesus is that he's actively showing us that he is God come to us. It is Jesus demonstrating his authority over everything, from disease to demons to life and death. And it is this 
that makes faith in Jesus so different than our illustration of the woman gambling at a roulette wheel. Yes, Jesus demands we place all of our future in his hands, that we gladly abandon wealth and fame and everything else that this world has to offer and place it into his hands. But this gamble, this this holy gamble, is not without significant evidence. Consider the miracles, says Matthew. Meditate on them. Let the impact of them settle on your consciousness. Is this not the sign that he really is who he says he is? And if that's true, consider your response to him. And so for the next four weeks, I want you to join me in studying three chapters in Matthew that that highlight the compassion, the power, the signs, and the wonders of Jesus. And don't go too quickly from the miracles to the cost of discipleship. Do it as Matthew does it. It's not until he's fully presented these nine miracles that he invites us to fully consider the cost and to gamble everything that we have on him. For the cost will seem like a small thing if indeed the miracles are true. You know, years ago, I remember reading the following line about Abraham, the father of faith. It said of Abraham's decision to leave the safety of Haran, the rich city where he lived, and to follow God to an unknown country. The line said something essentially like this. In Haran lay security, but also obscurity. In God lay an eternal destiny of joy that would never pass away. And indeed, is not that what Jesus offers us? His miracles assure us that he is who he says he is, that his love and compassion know no end, and that his destiny is infinitely greater than everything we have today. His miracles bid us to leave everything and grasp a treasure that will not pass away. John, as you were talking, I found it really interesting that you were describing these miracles that Jesus did, but Jesus wasn't doing miracles just for miracles sake. There was a greater purpose. Yeah, there is a greater purpose. And, and as I've said, I mean, compassion is one of the reasons, but, but there is a greater reason even than compassion. He wants to signal us that really, if we do leave everything, we have put all our, our resources on something that's solid. He's the solid rock. You can build your life on him. You don't have to worry that his promises aren't true. He's already proved that he is who he says he is. And, and that's the wonder about the miracles. So, you know, I would encourage Christians especially, you know, be reading the miracle stories and, and allow yourself to really think about them and, and meditate on them. Thanks so much, John. And uh, remember to join us again tomorrow for more of this great series right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Back to the Bible Canada exists to disciple God's people through Bible teaching that strengthens the church and builds the kingdom. We believe the church is essential to God's people. And in uncertain days, your prayers and support of the church is critical as God uses it to advance the gospel. To encourage and equip God's people, we're offering Dr. Neufeld's new series, Lessons for the Church, on CD for free. Request a copy for yourself, a friend, or place it in the church library. So we encourage you to stand with your local congregation. Refresh your hearts towards it. Be engaged with its ministry. Extend grace to the saints by caring for your church, 
you're loving the family of God. For more information or to order your free CD copy of Lessons for the Church, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.